It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, is Ronaldo now the man in charge at Old Trafford? Are Liverpool back to their best? We'll ask, has Mikel Arteta been transformed? And what's the worst debut in football? This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. To help me through it all today, of course, I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. And guys, as you can hear, the stag do this weekend went well. Uh, I think I was just, you know, it was every single United goal. As they hit the back of the net, it was getting louder, louder and louder. And now I can safely say that Cristiano Ronaldo's ruined my voice. So um, that's another thing to add for his return to the Premier League. Two goals on his second debut, 4-1 win over Newcastle at Old Trafford. And actually watching it, Honestly, I, I messaged friends. I was just like, it seems totally ridiculous and insane that Cristiano Ronaldo, stu- like he plays for Man United again. Seeing him out there in the shirt was just bizarre because it felt like United was suddenly a huge club again. The thing that they've been saying for the last seven or eight years were the biggest club in the world. It felt a bit like that to me. I don't know how it felt to you, Alison. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, now you're going to conquer the universe. Definitely. <laughs> uh, we've got the cynic back on. <laughs> <Better> <laughs> now, <don't we? laughs> I'm with you, Hugh. I think you, like, people, have, people often talk down that the impact of, of one player and his kind of presence. Um, and really, there's not anyone bigger on the planet in terms of ego, in terms of presence, in terms of all those things. And absolutely, I think he will have a huge impact on Manchester United's season. It, it won't always be as, as easy as this. The start was was remarkable. And, and that's not really a surprise when it's when it's Cristiano Ronaldo. But um, I think he will have a big impact, not just in the goals he scores, but in the kind of, as you say, returning Manchester United to something closer to what you feel that they should be. It does open up interesting conversations about myth versus reality and you can turn a truth into a truth i mean i don't know if you strictly analyze purely his uh, footballing contribution and movement and so on you would say that is by far the best player in the in the whole world and yet if you tell people he is and if you as the manager say he brings something that they didn't have before that reliability of knowing when to be in the box at the right time. And if the, his teammates believe they're playing with a superstar uh, and they, they are blessed to do so, and this is the greatest moment of their careers to share a dressing room with him, if this is believed 
then it will have a huge impact. It sort of doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's it's whether you buy into the we are blessed to have him myth, I think. I love the story where he was coming out there saying he's already been here, so he didn't have to do an initiation song. <laughs> he just said, <laughs> uh, so he just delivered a speech instead to like all, the, all his teammates who gathered around him, kind of, you know, kneeling before him. Uh, <laughs> what do you think the contents of his, of his speech were? Uh, that we need to... We need to aim for everything. We need to win. That's the kind of that's his mantra, isn't it? We need to aim for the Champions League. We need to aim for the Premier League title. I think a lot of players coming in, walking in, saying, "I'm not doing an initiation song," and and delivering that kind of speech would be kind of sniggered and laughed at. But it's Ronaldo, so I think it probably went down okay. <laughs> What's interesting to me is I think he's returned to Manchester United. I don't. I don't think I can actually remember it because obviously Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager for most of the time that I've been a Manchester United fan. That, that, that we have a player in the changing room who's maybe certainly bigger, a bigger figure for the club than the manager, but maybe just as big, if not bigger than the, the club itself. I'm not going to say that, I'm not saying that he believes he's bigger than the club, but there's actually a credible argument there for him being, you know, this figure who is, he, he's in charge. Oh, that's dangerous if you use the phrase in charge. I mean, that's not good. I chatted to people who cover Juventus for a piece and uh, he split the dressing room because there were the the mature, fated, uh, reliable players who felt he was a bit big for his boots. And then you had the more impressionable players who just wandered around like puppies copying what he ate, what he wore, how he walked. And that doesn't sound like a absolute recipe for world domination to me to to have a player that is not subject to the same discipline rules regulations as everybody else that he feels he's maybe he doesn't even try to feel that way maybe it just comes naturally that he feels he's on a different plane a different level so I think using that phrase that he's in charge and that the manager might not be in charge especially when it's a manager who played alongside him so you've got that sense of they weren't even equals when they were players you know the one one was very highly thought of and, and there's there's fond memories of Solskjaer as a player but but he's not in the stratosphere that is occupied by Ronaldo so I don't know and I think I think it's a big test of of Solskjaer and how he handles it because I, I, one thing I do like about Solskjaer is the way he has up until now spoken about his players and been able to you know it's been there's been a lot of a lot of doubt about where players play and their personality and the whole, you know, is I mean, he's been through all this with Pogba, hasn't he? Is Pogba too big for his boots? Does Pogba put his Instagram account before his play? That sort of thing. And he's he's, he's handled it. Re- I think overall, he's handled it really well. The, 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 Pogba's still there. Pogba's arguably improving for Manchester United. So I think I, I have some faith in Solskjaer to be able to handle the ego of Ronaldo, but it's what that does to the rest of the team. You, d- you don't want to feel, some players will start to feel a bit miffed if they've been told one thing, but then the guy sat next to the dressing room is allowed to do something else. I think he started well in the, uh, Solskjaer that is, in that, you know, there's been, there's been stories in the past about Ronaldo, people trying to play him centre forward through the middle as as he's aged a bit and he's said no, no I play on the left and you know people have had to indulge him and the fact they started there scored goals that's a good sign and I also think that he 
that Solskjaer's kind of the way he's talking him up as Alison's saying talking him up fluffing his ego a bit I think that's important I think he wants to feel loved he wants to feel like the biggest and the best and as long as he's going around scoring goals it'll be easy to continue to do that It was the mood that was so reminiscent of Manchester United of old it felt like a switch had flipped I don't know if I'm just a Manchester United fan who enjoyed it a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too much No it just it just you, you, you almost looked at the two lineups and you felt how, how, how can Man United lose today? I think unquestionably you look at Manchester United's attacking options now and there is so much depth there. Sancho, I think there's so so much to come from him. Greenwood the same on the other wing and Fernandez, Fernandez goal, you know, he arguably stole the show with that, with that finish. It was an absolute world of a strike. So, so much strength and depth there. But the thing about Ronaldo is, you know, you look at all, look at all the all Manchester United's other strikers. Really, a goal every three and a bit games is the average. And in the last over the last sixteen seasons for all these clubs, Ronaldo scored a goal every one one point one three games. So it's just a different a different league. And I think you know people were doubting whether he would come and do that again. I know it's only one game, and he's. It was a tap-in and a questionable goalkeeping. Well, not not goalkeeping <laughs> for a second. Um, but I, I think that I, I've no reason to doubt that it will continue to score goals at a ridiculous rate. I think what is fascinating, and, and I think this is why you feel the way you do, Hugh, although it's not for me to tell you how you're feeling, I suppose. But I can see it in your eyes. It's the fact that he was there before. I think that matters more than anything. So I think it matters more than if United had spent 200 million on someone or had grabbed a great player from under the noses of a rival. What matters, I think, what has lifted the fans is that it's a taste of how it used to be. It's a rekindling of the the old superior steamroller opposition Man United because you felt, I think as a club, you felt in transition for too long. And that hasn't sat well with those fans who were just used to endless domination. Instead of finding the solution from youth, which is what it did seem it was going to be at Old Trafford, you have a lot of young, especially young attacking players coming through that are very exciting. It's like you needed an injection of your history to make it feel like it could mean something. I felt the buzz was back at Old Trafford, let's call it that. So much so that Avram Glazer, the Man United owner, one of the key instigators of the European Super League, felt safe to come back to the city and watch the game as well. So, you know, very important. But there was, I was slightly disappointed as much as I'm, you know, raving about the, the, the debut and the weekend for Manchester United. As a fan, Ryan Giggs is a Manchester United legend. We know that. He's pleaded not guilty to actual bodily harm and common assault. He's also on a charge of controlling and coercive behaviour. His trial is at the end of January. But to see reports that he was in the director's box for the game, you know, it, it was a party atmosphere. Everyone seemed to be invited. Every ex-Man United player virtually that you could think of was there. And Giggs was no exception, but I felt he probably should have been an exception. And I'm not really sure what the message is. I don't know what you guys think. Alison, what did you think? I think these are really hard. I can see why it happened. You want to create a sense of family and all the players and people who've been important to you as a club are there for what is a, a momentous day. And it's, you know, who's, who's the person who takes the responsibility? I think in this case, it's easier to say yes 
he can come rather than be the person with the responsibility to be the grown up in the room and say, this, this is not the right look for us as a club. We need to, yes, you're right, Hugh. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not making a judgment on his innocence or otherwise, but we just feel the right thing to do is to, is to wait until the trial. I just, but I can, I can sort of picture the scene. I can picture how nobody wants to take the responsibility of saying, of actually having to have a sort of ethical think about it. You know, it's like, well, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not putting him out on the pitch. He's not, he's not helping Solskjaer. We're not making, we're not giving him an appointment. You know, he's allowed to watch the game. Nothing wrong with that. I can see why that's the path you go down. But it's it's interesting. It's interesting if it makes if it makes a Manchester United fan, and I assume you you thought he was an astonishingly amazing player for you, if if not a briefly a manager. Then um, if you are feeling uncomfortable. I mean, that's quite instructive. There'll be a lot of other fans who would have done a double take and thought, what is our club doing here? It's just, it's a question of responsibility and the fact that people don't think deeply about moral issues, I think. Believe Catherine Mayorga. That was a banner flown above the, the stadium as well. Um, she's the woman who accused Cristiano Ronaldo of sexual assault in 2009. Of course, claims that he firmly denies he will not face any charges over those allegations. But some Manchester United fans I saw on social media were conflicted from the start of his signing, you know, over the fanfare. And I wonder whether, Alison, you think that's fair or understandable? Oh, God, this is this is so difficult. There are parallels with the um, Prince Andrew and Virginia Roberts case as well, because we're talking about civil action, claims for damages. There's no criminal case involved and... It's really hard because it's one person's word against another person. And then you throw in celebrity and wealth, which skews everything. It's, it's, so on the, on the one hand, you can say just because you're very, very famous doesn't mean you're on a, another level of responsibility and law and so on. And there is a sense that if you're rich enough, you can buy your way out of justice because you can pay for the best lawyers and you'll have the people who adore you always backing you. So you feel you're above the process. It must be incredibly hard if you are hurt by a very famous player because you feel like the system's against you and you're battling against the odds. The flip side of that, of course, is that very famous and very wealthy people attract civil suits because they're seen as a chance to make money and it makes me feel very uncomfortable that money is involved at all, that you, you're after money because you've been hurt and abused or whatever. Um, it should be about justice and protecting other women. So it's complicated. You, I think you can make a case. It's totally unfair that people are allowed to make accusations against someone as famous as Ronaldo and he would always be a target for people who are after something he has and exploiting his wealth and his fame. And you could equally make a case that why should someone as rich as Ronaldo be above the law? And why is a club signing him when there is still a civil case hanging over him? But footballers have such short careers, you can't put their lives on hold while these things are sorted in the courts. And he denies all accusations. It's so tangled emotionally, morally, legally, and everything. But the one overwhelming element is, I would say, 
the airbrushing of it. And I so I do understand why a banner was flown over Old Trafford because there will be a sense that hang on, in none of the talk about whether he should come to the Premier League and who will he sign for, very, very little was said about this cloud hanging over him, whether indeed it is a cloud that should or should not be hanging over him. Really, really difficult to work my way through this. Yeah, we should stress gigs, Ronaldo and Prince Andrew, uh, deny all accusations and allegations against them. But um thought it was yeah incumbent on us to at least have that discussion. Um, let's bring in David Walsh of the Sunday Times. He was at Old Trafford this weekend to watch Ronaldo's homecoming, if you like. Hi, David. How are you? Yeah, good morning. How was your experience of Ronaldo's return? Because I was buzzing about it, but I wasn't in the stadium. What was it like? I wouldn't say I was buzzing. I'm not a Man United fan and, and I have a, a view, a football view that in, in the medium in the medium term, this may not turn out quite as well as, as as Man United fans believe it will and are hoping it will. Having said that, uh, being at the ground, um, I mean, we often talk about a place buzzing with excitement or, or, you know, feeling a sense of anticipation. And being sports writers, we often exaggerate. Well, you couldn't exaggerate the sense of anticipation that preceded the game. I don't think I've ever been in a stadium um, and watched a team doing its warm-up and being so conscious that every person in their seats at that point were watching one player in in the warm-up. I mentioned in the report I did for the Sunday Times that Renando, about 15, 10, 15 minutes before the game, had a little practice free kick in the warm-up and the ball smashed against the inside post high up and, 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 and came out. And there was a perceptible ooh from the, from the crowd. I mean, in the warm-up. And, and, and I thought, such was the excitement. It's a pity that this game has to start because it can, it, it can only go downhill from here. And, and in a sense... It did go downhill because Newcastle were very organized and they, they knew there was a role for them. You know, the, 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 um, they were like the, they were like the, the fatted calf and, and, and the, the homecoming of the prodigal son was, you know, who, who left United at the peak of his career. The homecoming was happening now and everybody was excited by it and Newcastle were going to be brushed aside. And basically for 45 minutes, United didn't get a look at. Newcastle's goal, so well organized and and so well were Newcastle playing, who were a little bit dangerous even on the counter attack. And then right at half time, Mason Greenwood does what he's very good at, getting a shot away very quickly, catching a goalkeeper slightly unawares. The ball is spilt, and who should be standing alongside the goalkeeper, tapping it into the net? Ronaldo. After the game, Oligola Sancher made a really big deal about saying this was a great goal. Now if you were looking at it superficially, you'd say, come on, Ole, it was a tap-in. But I must say, I agree 100% with Solskjaer. Ronaldo's speed in anticipating that, that speed in getting there, but the mental speed in terms of anticipating that this ball may well be spilled was unbelievable. I mean, he was standing ready to tap in all alone. Obviously, Newton none of Newcastle's defenders were thinking like Ronaldo was. And this is part of the reason why the guy scores many goals. He has an uncanny instinct. And and in a way, that that, that tap-in and the demonstration of, of, of Ronaldo's 
kind of instinct for goal and justified everything. And of course, it really affected the match because Manchester United win at halftime feeling, oh, we're a goal up. Much less pressure now in the second half. We have an advantage. And Ronaldo's second goal was in a way much more like it in that it was a, you know, the perfect demonstration that he still has got a lot of physical powers. I mean, his top end speed is outstanding. And his touch when Luke Shaw put a beautiful through ball in his pass, his first touch was amazing. And then his finish was clinical. So every United fan who had come for a party, it turns out that for once in life, you know, you're, your and your anticipation of an experience is commensurate it's commensurate with the actual experience and they went away incredibly happy did you as a reporter and someone in the ground did you feel because it wasn't live in the uk the game did you feel a sense of privilege like it was more like um, a theatre where it isn't live streamed in a cinema, you know, the people there are the ones re- really understanding it and getting it live. And it, did it feel privileged in that sense? Yeah, I didn't think too much about it um, um, not being live because every time you go to a three o'clock game, you, you know it's not live. So this was just another three o'clock game that wasn't live. But I did feel uh, and, and even as an as a as a as a non Manchester United supporter, I did feel that I was witness to something very special because we could have a long intellectual argument about whether Manchester United fans are right to be um, so excited, given the potential damage that Ronaldo's return might do to the careers of so many. Oh, David, David, we've already had that long intellectual discussion before you came on air. So it's all right. We've dealt dealt with the intellect. If you do leave that to one side, um, the excitement was incredible. It really was. And, And I say that as somebody who's been going to Premier League matches for a long, long time. I, I would, I would, you know, I would go as far as to say that if I look back, you know, on all the times I've been at Premier League grounds and that buzz of anticipation, um, this was unique because this buzz of anticipation wasn't about the game. It was about one player returning to a club where he previously played and the fans were, were absolutely ecstatic about the prospect of seeing him back in their colours again. And, for, you know, you've got to give Ronaldo credit because he is he is a performer, a very individual performer who has done, who, you know, one of the world's greatest footballers come back, comes back to an old haunting ground at the age of 36 and scores the team's first two goals and sets them on, uh, on the way to their victory. I was talking about the whole lift of the club with him being there. But did you sense that Manchester United could only win that match. You know, I know you said 45 minutes, Newcastle were very good, but did you ever sense they weren't going to win it? You know, that something wasn't going to happen to make them win that game. If you were to freeze the action after Newcastle scored a very good equalising goal, um, you're thinking, this could go all wrong. This really could go all wrong. But it's, it, it, is, it is like... Um, um, that expectation, if, you're, if, say, you were... Uh, um, a Newcastle fan or a neutral who wanted the underdog to get an unlikely result. That very thought that Newcastle were going to get something out of this game is actually what hastens the demise of Newcastle. 
because they score a very good goal, a little bit of a counterattack, but they open up United extremely well uh, and, uh, and they score an excellent goal. And they think we can get something out of this. They push forward a little bit more and then they get exposed to Cristiano Ronaldo because as soon as Luke Shaw gets this ball inside the United half, Ronaldo, of course, before everybody, sees what's going to happen next. He takes off like, a, like an Olympic 100-meter sprinter. The first time in the game he's come anywhere near his maximum speed. And Luke Shaw sees it. And Luke Shaw, like every other United player on the day, this, was, this bit was obvious. Wherever they saw Ronaldo in, a, in any kind of good position, they felt they had to pass to him. And Shaw played the perfect pass. Ronaldo did the it did the rest. Um, but it but 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 were United brilliant and and did you come away thinking this team is going to win the Premier League? No, you didn't. What you thought was that weakness in midfield defensively, uh, um, particularly, is is very obvious. And the United back four gets exposed quite a lot because the midfield just doesn't work. So um, where it goes, and it was interesting. There was one, one bit that I took away from the game that, that I thought was very encouraging from the Manchester United point of view. When the game was very tight and space was at a premium inside the Newcastle half, the one United player that looked like he could open up Newcastle was Jadon Sancho. The one United player that had the confidence to take players on in a confined area was Jaden Sancho. And for lots of periods, you know, but for lots of times in that first half, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was a bit, um, you know, he would, he would take passes with his back to goal. He would lay them off. He was trying nothing that might mean that he was going to give the ball away. And you did have a sense that in the, when the, when, when the kind of clashes were a little bit physical, you know, he was, he was also he was looking after himself. He wasn't getting himself involved in physical tussles that he didn't need to. And and in saying that, I'm being polite. Is he bigger than the club? Finally, I asked the guys a little bit earlier on. There was a sense that he's now the man in charge in many ways. Such is the fanfare around Ronaldo. In a sense, yes, it did. I would have to say, and and I would make the point that that after Ronaldo scored his two goals and United were on their way. I thought the team were freed up, and I thought people like like Fernandez and and Greenwood and Sancho they all looked a little bit more comfortable. And I thought United were at their best during that period. Right at the end, they looked like if the game had gone on, they could have scored two or three more goals. But I would also say that we used to kind of it was a cliche, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the the babyface assassin. I think this is a big challenge for Solskjaer, and he was asked afterwards. Did he feel he would have to play Ronaldo in every game? And and you got the assassin look, and it said very politely in that in that way that Solchar does. I've got a Mason Greenwood, a very young player. I'm going to have to manage his minutes. I've got Cristiano Ronaldo at a very different age, and I'm also going to have to manage his minutes. QED. I will leave Ronaldo out when I think it's it's right to leave him out, just as I will leave Greenwood out when I think it's right to leave him out. I would still back Solskjaer. I don't believe that, that Solskjaer will be dictated to about Ronaldo. Easier said than done, but we'll see if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's got what it takes. David Walsh, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast. And that concludes our chat about Manchester United. Up next, we're talking Mo Salah and Liverpool. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, congratulations to Mohamed Salah. Fifth fastest to 100 Premier League goals. It's taken him 162 games. Only Shearer, Kane, Aguero and Henri have done it faster. It's illustrious company. It finished Leeds nil, Liverpool three. And on Mohamed Salah, Alisson, he, he just keeps going. How much more do you think he will produce at this level? Oh, loads. I don't see much evidence that he's he's slowing down rapidly. He's probably probably technically past his absolute peak, but I I I really enjoyed watching him play against Leeds. There's um it was it's interesting actually. Um we've been talking about how Man United players were if if at all possible, if, if the ball was on, they would try and pass it to Ronaldo. It was almost whether that was instructed or not. They felt it. They felt he's the star. He's the player who'll make something happen. There's a reason he's here and he has to be on the ball. And I think that is the case often with with the Liverpool players. They do, I mean, Sadio Mane's the exception here because he was desperate to score and often didn't, didn't pass when he should have. But everybody else, they wanted him. They wanted Mo Salah to have the ball because, well, for lots of reasons. One is uh, he's a reliable goal scorer. But he's intelligent. He makes runs, so it's easy to pass to him. When he has the ball at his feet, he will make defenders look wobbly and insecure. Um, he livens things up. He's just dazzling. And, and I think in a way we've got used to him now. We, we, he's not a surprise, but he still acts as though... You, I still believe he's going to do something 
unexpected or inspirational when he when he does have the ball. And um, there's still joy in the way he plays. There's you know there's always speculation about will he stay? Uh, what sort of fee could he command if he went somewhere else? I think he looks like he's really enjoying his football. And also, I think what's nice is that he looks like he enjoys um, playing against the new players that come through. So him and Harvey Elliott, well, that relationship's um, going to be uh, off the cards for a bit, sadly. But uh, up until, <laughs> sadly, his injury, they looked like they were they were developing a very, very intense sort of on-field relationship and understanding, which... You know, he's great. He's not like some sort of football snob that only wants to play in a certain way. He's he looks adaptable as well. He's a, he's a, honestly he is an absolute joy, and I'm not just saying that because I am a Liverpool supporter. He is he is an absolute joy to watch, and I think to answer your question, he'll be breaking more records definitely. Is he the best wide forward? We've seen in the Premier League, Gregor, because the other names, Shearer, Kane, Aguero, and Henri, central strikers during their time in the Premier League. You could argue Henri. You could argue Henri. As a wide forward. Well, in the way that he kind of, it was different, yeah, but he drifted out to the left a lot. And But yeah, no, I take your point. I take your point. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different. He, sorry, I'm kind of jumping in your question. Is it going to be that it's a bigger achievement because he's not even an out and out striker? Well, I, I, it just, I mean, the company that he holds are yeah. just genuine out and out goal scorers. And he's one of those that I don't think you would call a genuine out and out goal scorer, but his numbers match up. Yeah. You know, I mean, part of that is to do the kind of the way the game has changed in, in the years since, since those guys scored, scored their goals. Um, you know, a two man uh, central strike force is quite rare these days, but I take your point and it's just, He's also very, you know, very creative. Um, and the thing that the thing that leapt out for me in this game, watching this game, was his strength. It was remarkable the number of times that Junior Fearpaul was trying, to, had a bit of a tough time, really, was trying to kind of leap in right up behind him, and he just kept holding him off, holding him off, and twisting and turning. I, I think you know, there's quite, it's quite easily overlooked that he's an incredible athlete, and you know, he's 29. Um, so the question is how. You know, how much more are we going to see this? I, I agree with Alison. We could see a heck of a lot more of Mo Salah performing at this level. Guaranteed 20 plus goals every single season. Um, and he's, 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 he's been a remarkable, remarkable signing for Liverpool, given that you've got to remember the kind of, the attitude and the perception of when he was brought back because of his, his difficulty at Chelsea. Um, he thought, you know, really? I think it was, what was it, 30 plus million? He's thinking, that seemed a lot of money at the time, and now, <laughs> and you know, you look at that, you reflect on that, and think it was it was a masterstroke, um, and fits so perfectly with the way Jurgen Jurgen Klopp um, wants Liverpool to play. So, yeah, amazing achievement. We'll come on to the very sad injury for Harvey Elliott in a moment. I know you mentioned it already, Alison, but Liverpool's performance was fantastic. They had thirty shots, a hundred for the season so far. They're only the second Premier League side to do it in the last 18 years. In fact, Sadio Mane's goal was actually his 10th shot of the game individually. Um, what did you make of Liverpool's performance? You could flip it and say it's a bit worrying that Liverpool are not actually converting all these chances. And I, I yeah, my joy at the, 
it was a very entertaining match, but it, 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 joy's tempered by the fact that it, it's Leeds were the perfect opposition. Um, and even then they didn't convert as many as they should have. Whereas you could see, you could understand why they struggled to score against a very, very well organized Chelsea. That was understandable and had some frustrations attached because I did feel Liverpool didn't really mix it up in that game and kept trying to do the same thing. And they kept trying to do the same thing against Leeds. And yes, it, 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 it worked and they got the three points and they got three goals. And But the fact they should have had more, I, I, there's a part of me that's thinking, you know, when they won the title, those goals were going in. There was more of a sense of abandon more of a sense of faith that they would score from the opportunities they were creating. I don't know that I quite like the the ironic celebration of Mane when he he sort of apologised when he finally scored. He was apologising. Sorry, guys, I did become a bit selfish because it was getting it was getting to me. I was getting cross that I wasn't scoring, and uh, so I, I you know I, I acknowledge I was probably being a little bit self indulgent here. But it's uh, it's not always going to be that easy, um, and Leeds did make it quite easy. Not very easy. I, th- I actually thought Leeds weren't dreadful, but it, it, th- 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 not every game is going to be that open. And you just think, what are, what are Liverpool going to do in those games where instead of taking the Leeds template, people try and adopt the Chelsea template, which is you know you can frustrate Liverpool even with Mo Salah in great form. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for pointing out how 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 entertaining and how well they played, Hugh. But I'm not. I don't feel like this was a breakthrough game for this coming season at all. I just think it was an odd, odd match and made more and more peculiar by the fact it should really, should really have scored. They should really have scored more. Uh, it's, it's good to know though that Alison isn't just killing the buzz for Man United fans today. <laughs> It is, it is also her own team, Liverpool. Fantastic. As long as we've got that consistency, everything's okay. I think Liverpool are back. I think there's, you know, real questions you can you can ask, or there could be some fears about their strength and depth compared to the rest of the the teams you would you would say are challenging for the title, um, and even more so after Harvey Elliott's injury. You look at the bench; it's just not the same. Uh, but look, I thought Liverpool were excellent. Like. So much pace and intent, and that you know, more more back to what Liverpool you expect Liverpool to be playing like, and Jota as well. I think Jota's, you know, he, even when he's not scoring goals, he's so important now. Uh, now for Klopp, and I, I can't. I think probably Grealish is someone who I'm just about to say. I, th- I can't think of many players who use their body as well as Jota. It's kind of the way he, he takes the ball on the run. Or he, he opens up his body and manages to kind of spin a player at the same time without even touching the ball. Sometimes he's like, I think he's outstanding the way he kind of that that central role, the way he can kind of turn and get Liverpool going forwards so quickly. And but as I say, perhaps Grealish is the only other player I can think of who uses a body as well. And he's, I think he, Firmino, I think been injured, but he's 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 looking like part of that front three now. Um, Another thing is Thiago and, and Fabinho are, are kind of looking like they're striking up a really good relationship in the middle. Um, there's been question marks about Thiago, you know Thiago's first season didn't go that well, but I, I think they've won their last nine games in a row that they've played together. Um, and and what's the obvious? 
having Van Dyke back. There's just moments in the game where like there was one where I, I think it was Bamford was kind of chasing the ball down towards the byline, and you think a centre half would just kick out of play, and he kind of slowed up his run and just darted in front and cut back up, and he was he was building an attack. Then Liverpool went on the attack, and I think they kind of they built a, a move. That's something that. It's not just about his defending, it's the way, it's the composure he has to kind of to nip, nip a situation in the bud, but also start something off for Liverpool. So these little fine margins, you put all those things together, Liverpool are back. Liverpool, I think Liverpool were excellent. I don't know, I don't I don't think you can say that yet, Gregor. Because if if they'd been if they'd beaten Chelsea, then I'd say yes. They've got the but same I, amount I of points. Think, I think, I the think there's more difference. to learn. There's more to learn from their performance against Chelsea than there is against their performance against a very open Leeds. That was bound to be fruitful hunting ground for Liverpool, the way that Leeds play. Everyone knows that. Most teams won't play like that. Most teams will, will, will put men behind the ball and frustrate. And I worry that Liverpool will always find a way to cut through that. Leeds can be an opposition that, you know, if it's the same when we spoke about when they faced Manchester United, it's like they, they can be an ideal opposition. The other thing about Leeds, you have to say, is that they need to sort out their, their woes at, at set place. It's just getting ridiculous now. You look at, there was a warning shot before in the first half, I think Cooper, Mark and Van Dyke, and Van Dyke won the header and then that's how it was Van Dyke's header, again, losing Cooper. That, that created the, the opportunity for Fabinho. So, yeah, I, I still think, I think Liverpool are, you know, we, we can say that, they've, that they're just about back to, to the best, personally. Sadness, of course, Harvey Elliott's injury. Um, nothing has been confirmed as yet in terms of severity, but clearly looking at the images, he was at least an ankle dislocation for the youngster. Um Jurgen Klopp was asked about the idea of letting the game flow afterwards. And he said, look, I don't want you guys to quote me as if I'm talking about this specific incident. I'll tell you what I've told you before today's incident. And my opinion remains the same in that he has always felt if you let the game flow to the extent that they're trying to in the Premier League this year, there will be more injuries because the players will believe that they can go in a little bit harder and maybe get away with a little bit more. Um, What's your view on that, Gregor? I kind of knew as soon as as soon as this happened. And look, it's one of those things. It's it's horrible to watch, and also kind of a, and I can slightly relate to having a year on the sidelines with a broken leg, and just the moment that your life changes like that, and you know, so much sympathy for Harvey Elliott. But my personal view is that this this tackle, that tackle, would have occurred without this directive having changed. It was a kind of an attempted hook challenge. Harvey cut across him, which you could see was 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 good play and that it, it made Stuart have to make the challenge or else he was out of the game. Um but it it, it was uh people say he leaped through the air. He, he 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 tried to get over over the ball to hook it back round. And it wasn't really his it was more his trailing leg that was the issue. It landed on top of Harvey Elliott's trailing leg and the power and the force had a catastrophic uh, result for Harvey Elliott. So I don't think the directive changes this. I don't think it's true that there's going to be like wildly reckless challenges, more reckless challenges because of this directive. I think really that you know, I, I think there is a line to be tread because referees. There, you have I've sat watched games this season and thought this is this is great, this is what I want to see. But really, the, what the referees' directive was was intended to do was to was to stop little 
niggly fouls and and people falling over and, and being, you know, the merest, the slightest touch and be given a free kick. So they do need to watch the direction of travel. But I don't think it's gone too far. I don't think I don't think this should be used as a as a reason to roll back on something that I think is going to improve the spectacle of the game. And I think I honestly, honestly, truly, honestly believe that if you were to ask professional footballers, they would agree that the risk of injury, that even if it's a marginally increased, the risk of injury, it's worth it to have a better game. A game where you can make tackles that are forceful and fair and not fear that being a foul as soon as you as soon as you do so or you think about doing so. Uh, you know, as I say, I, I've spent a year on the sidelines and I still, that hasn't changed my... Because of a tackle. It was a tackle. And it hasn't changed my view of it. I haven't lived through that. And I honestly think if you were to ask most, most professional footballers, they would prefer the way the game has been played this season so far to the way it's been played in the last couple of seasons. I broadly agree with you, Gregor. I get why Klopp's upset and he was visibly Absolutely. upset. And he's allowed to be upset and he's allowed to conjecture as to the reasons yeah. for what happened. I, w- I really wouldn't criticise him for it at all. But you can't, it, it's not the way of, of any sector, whether it's football or politics or whatever, you shouldn't make the jump to conclusions that um, a certain a certain set of circumstances lead to one particular incident. I don't, I mean... The game has always had and always will have these um, unintentional consequences, um, and it, that's what it is. It's a, it's a it's a it's not a very dangerous sport, but it's a fairly you know it's a sport you go into knowing knowing the risks, and they generally happen. Um, injuries generally happen, you know, usually when a player's just landed awkwardly or it often it's often the things that don't look serious that end up being serious. And in this instance, the initial tackle wasn't itself dangerous. It was the trailing leg, as you pointed out. Um, you can't stop footballers having two feet. This is going to happen. You you know, it's just it's just it's just what what goes on. I think what is interesting is that um everyone involved in officiating the game got their pants in a pickle because they didn't know how to explain the red card. There was initially put out that the referee was going to give a red card straight away. He was not influenced by the outcome, but play was allowed to go on. So that doesn't make sense. Um, Peter Walton says in today's times, he admits that he is affected by the damage done to an individual will affect what card he gives. This is a new, if this is true, then they need to codify it because it's a new way of refereeing. You can't, you can't, basically what we're saying now is if a player is badly hurt, then you can retrospectively conclude that that meant he was in danger and therefore the player, the attacking player involved, the player who attacked the player, the player who tackled the player has to therefore receive, um, uh, the red card as a result. So that's not how. That's not what. That's not what the current rules say. So it needs to be. They need to be honest about what they're doing here. They are retrospectively applying the law to say if someone's hurt, ergo, it was dangerous play. That is not necessarily true, though, is it? It was the same with Gomez and Son. I think it was. Was that last season or the season before? The the, the, the severity of the injury influenced the clearly influenced the decision. I think you could say, it when, when, when you know, <laughs> it's, it's again the benefit of hindsight, 
if you you know the decision you, you know the tackle was reckless after after someone has broken their ankle or leg but if you saw the tackle in real time i don't think you can say it's reckless because as i say again people who are saying he's jumping through the air he wasn't jumping through the air in the direction of harvey elliott he was jumping in through the air on front of him to scoop the, to scoop the ball round, and it's the it's the opposition of forces. It's Harvey Elliott's leg being trapped. These things always happen because the lower part of your leg is trapped. It's in the planted in the ground. It's the same way I broke my leg. I stretched. My foot was planted in the ground. I was going the force of my force of direction was going one way, and the tackle came through the other way. It's misfortune. That's what it is, and it's never going to go. And also. You could make it go, but the effect on the game would be too drastic, in my opinion. And I think, as I say again, a lot of footballers would agree. I haven't got a problem with Pascal Stroik making a hook challenge, but he does leave the ground with both feet. You're out of control. You can't control your body then. You're you're in the air. I know at the moment he lands on, on Harvey Elliott's leg. When you look at the still, of course, he's got a foot on the ground already. He's already kicked the ball. So it maybe doesn't look that bad. But I think when you come off the ground, you know you're going to land on that player's leg. And there's the element no, of chance. No, you don't. Of no, you know you you're going to land on the ground. No, here's the thing. You're either going to, if your hips collide, bounce the player off, and there's a chance that he just goes flying, gets you know knocked from the side, because you're using your weight and your leverage to obviously scoot the ball away. But when your body comes through, you feel you feel like you'll knock the player away from it. So you're almost creating a buffer, almost like you're shielding the ball. But like I say, once you take two feet off the ground, you cannot control that situation. I'm not saying it's definitely a red card, but I'm, I am always wary of challenges that come in from obviously directly behind Outlawed, but even from, you know, at an angle just behind a player. It's a more difficult position in terms of that player that you're tackling, their awareness of the situation and your ability to control what happens. So I was still slightly surprised it was a red card. I'm just saying that I don't think it is as clear that it wasn't a red card as some people are making out. I think that we could make that challenge 99 times out of 100 and Arviella gets up and runs away and tries to win the second ball. It's it's such fine march. It's it's his leg, Arviella's leg, is, is running, it's not even his leg, it's running pattern, one of his legs being out behind him and Strudic landing at the time when, he's bring, when his foot's coming through and it's getting stuck in the ground. That's, it's, it's incredibly unlucky. And look, the, no matter what we're saying, the main thing is that you just hope an 18-year-old kid who's, get, who's nailing down a place in Liverpool's first team uh, comes back as, as kind of fit and strong and healthy and, and is with you know so much football in front of him. That is the biggest, the biggest hope because it's a tough old road. And yeah, and I, again, I, I could see Klopp on the on a touchline, actually having this conversation with with the fourth official. Yeah, I could see him say, like, you know, lip red. I'm saying letting the game flow. He's he's clearly he clearly thinks that there's a correlation between these two things. That's where I I disagree personally. But we wish, as Gregor says, Harvey Elliott all the best with his uh, recovery. Hopefully, he's back out there very, very soon. Up next, we're going to talk about Arsenal, who finally got some points on the board in the Premier League, as well as the best and worst debuts. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed as well. Arsenal got their win. They beat Norwich by a goal to nil. Look, doesn't need to be a classic, doesn't need to be a 5-0. 1-0 to the Arsenal will do. Alison Raji went to the Emirates Stadium to witness it. Mikel Arteta, a new man. Yeah, no, well, Cynic would say the repackaging of Mikel Arteta. I hope this is genuine because um, after the game, he 
he was different. He he said, but he said what was interesting was he said the same thing to um, the cameras as he did to the written media, almost word for word. So he clearly he clearly knew what he wanted to say, what message he wanted to send. Because he, he, I think he's a manager that needs to convey that he's um, up for the job, he's in charge. He, stop talking about him being sacked. He needs to convey this message. So he said, um, rather than being absolutely, you know, uh, flummoxed and uh, trying to get everything right in the international break after the 5 0 defeat to Manchester City, he said it was the, the best 10 to 15 days of his football life his whole football life, which is um, a, a strange claim. Anyway, later they do a, they do an embargo bit. And so I asked him, you know, to expand on this. And he did, it was interesting. He did relax and he, sh- you know, he let his shoulders drop. He set, settled back in his chair and he was more, uh, more of a sort of chatty human being than he's been um, um, really because he can be a bit of a, uh, a robot-like sometimes, uh, Arteta. You know, I know what I'm going to say. I know what I want, and I'm going to say it. He was more human, and he was saying that actually calling it the best 10 to 15 days of his football life wasn't actually what he meant. Really, what he meant was he hit rock bottom. Um, he was very low. Uh, he listened to the criticism of people like us on the podcast, and it was in a sort of whirlwind of... What, what do you do at this point? And he was uh, uplifted and heartened and revitalized by the fact that nobody at the club blamed him. There was no blame culture from top to bottom. People were talking about, we can get through this. How do we get through this? This is going to work. Uh, he felt the players were giving everything. Um, he was just so, I think he just felt humbled by the fact that internally at least, he was being backed and there was a sense of optimism despite the abysmal start to the season. Now, what was also strange was no one really knew this till after the game, but the crowd at the Emirates were really up for it. <laughs> but they were helped enormously by the fact that um, Spurs had lost in the early kickoff and it was really sunny. And you had these, uh, the new players were in action for Arsenal and they were playing well. So everything just felt rather lovely. But I did, I did, I have to admit, I did get the sense that um, had Aubameyang not scored, the mood could have turned. There was, there were, there was that famous Emirates murmur of, not sure, not sure. Um, uh, There was a groundswell of that before the goal. So I I do feel um, it could have gone horribly wrong for Arteta, but he got the win and then revealed a human side to himself and in so doing let us know that he's got the backing eight of the higher ups the lower downs and the players and I have to admit when they had 30 shots so it's a bit annoying for them that they didn't put them away but it they the, it did look like um it did actually look like the start of something there was there was some there was some good link up play and a, a bit of freedom about how they played as well so they didn't really look like on the pitch and like a club in crisis so i think overall i would say that was um quite a positive day in the sunshine 
in North London. I, I don't know sure we can know like how much support he has. To be brutally honest, I think what we really saw was a manager conveying the most positive kind of demeanour that he that he could that he could stir up, uh, which which I think he probably deserves credit for anyway, uh, because there was a feeling that Arsenal had hit rock bottom, and I think. You know, not just in the league table. I think that probably is the truth because they were without a lot of players. They were able to get Ben White and and uh, Odegaard and you know it, some Tommy Asu at right back. Some of their new players into the team. Uh, this looks more like uh, Arsenal's Arsenal's best team. It's not quite there, but it looks more like it. And that that is crucial for them because. We already talk, talked about how much money they've spent and whether it's going to improve the team. The only way of finding that out is, is getting them on the pitch regularly and getting them working together. And he's had two weeks to do that somewhere away uh, on international duty, obviously. But I just think we saw someone trying to convey the most upbeat, positive, I'm still, you know, I'm still really 100% up for this, guys. Uh, come with me, you know, follow me. <laughs> I think that's what we really saw. Um, I don't think... I don't think the up the higher ups uh, support would would last that much longer if they were to fall back into into some more defeats and and you know hover around the, the bottom places for for much longer. I think he needs to get results and we need to see improvement on the pitch um, because it's remarkable. You know, it, it's good to see that the Emirates was. I've had a few people tell me that the Emirates was right behind Arsenal, and you know it's not always been that way. Um, it's remarkable to see how kind of, you know, they, they were chanting, ironically, we are staying up. It's remarkable to see how far their kind of expectations have fallen. I wrote a piece as well at the weekend about Norwich. Um, 30, it's nearly 30 years since their last win it in North London, um, which was the opening, opening day of the, the the inaugural Premier League season. Uh, they won 4-2. Mark Robbins scored a couple. I wrote a piece, kind of a bit of a, going back to remember that, because... There was a little faint whiff of you know they might <laughs> there's a chance they might do it <laughs> to get their first win in three decades, and there was quite a lot of Arsenal fans kind of leaving comments stuff saying yeah I wouldn't be surprised I think there's quite a defeatist attitude about the place so really I don't think they could have got much lower I honestly don't I think they probably have hit the nadir and it was positive steps for Arsenal undoubtedly I think I think it brings us full circle back to the mood at Old Trafford actually and how that is important because if it had been absolutely blowing a gale and pissing down with rain and Tottenham had won 8-0 I don't I don't know that and I don't know that they would have won it necessarily Arsenal I think they were players were allowed to enjoy themselves because there was a there was a, a groundswell of optimism and as you say the odd bit of gallows humor but it was all done with joy there wasn't much nastiness around I, I think that helped enormously. And it should be a lesson to them because it is a ground that turns far too quickly. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they do against Burnley this weekend. Look, before we go, we're going to talk about the best and worst debuts because, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo had his debut. Quite a few players had debuts in the Premier League this weekend as well. Some memorable, some not so memorable. Alison Rudd, best and worst debuts for you? Ah, oh, well, well, well. Yeah, I think you know what I'm going to say. February 2011. Fernando Torres. Sorry, I'm still laughing. Uh, his debut for Chelsea against Liverpool at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Liverpool won 1-0 and he didn't play very well. And then he continued to not play very well. And given that his first Liverpool goal had come 
against Chelsea in 2007. And then he continued to keep scoring and become adored by the cop. The fact he handed in a transfer request, it was it was the transfer, you know, it made it made the, the January transfer window like, oh, what, this isn't supposed to happen. It was it was an absolute shock. I know Liverpool fans who sobbed and it was hard really you know, with your fan hat on to wish him well and uh, it never did go well. So from his point of view though, it was just a debut that was bad in itself and then was the harbinger of doom. And um, the best debut, uh, because I've got this massive soft spot for Zlatan, I think the way when he went to America and everyone thought, oh, that's just stupid. What's he doing that for? But um, uh, his debut, he came on in the 71st minute and LA Galaxy were losing 3-1 and he turned it around. He he had one assist, two goals, one of which was um, a 40-yard screamer. And so they won. And you just think... That is Zlatan. That is how to make your debut. I think it's hard to beat Federico Makeda's debut, isn't it? Surely. 17 coming on curling in the, the winner against Aston Villa. Worst, I think, unquestionably has to be Jonathan Woodgate after his move to Real Madrid. He waited like over a year, I think, for <laughs> to make the debut after all his injury troubles, then scored an own goal and was sent off. So <laughs> I think pretty hard to top that, although probably some of my debuts would have competed. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, Leeds fans will remember Rio Ferdinand's debut. Just to, just been made a British record signing, 3-0 down at half-time against Leicester City, having just joined the club, of course, went on to absolute greatness. For me, as a Man United fan, it's Wayne Rooney's hat-trick on his debut, Champions League against Fenerbahce. Don't get much better than that, but um, there are a few. I think, to be honest, in British football history, it has to be Ali Dia for Southampton. I mean, how can you have a worse debut than that? Someone who's basically an, a non-league footballer playing in the top flight, non-league footballer at best, playing in the top flight. The manager not realising that he signed someone who doesn't have any right to be anywhere near that pitch. Soon as getting more and more angry on the touchline. That's the best. That has to be the best. Um, Guys, thank you so much for being with me for the past hour or so. Plenty to come on Thursday. We've got the Champions League this week. So we will be back very soon. Make sure you join us. Get subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. You'll get yourself one month free right now. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.